Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 60. It is January 7th, 2020. Sounds like a made-up date, but it is actually today's date. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris, and on this episode, we will discuss Luis Roberts' rising ADP, Shogo Akiyama's decision to sign with the Reds, the Nationals' recent flurry of activity, uh, some of the fallout from a draft and hold league that I completed over the last couple of weeks, and a lot of other topics, as well as a few mailbag questions as well. We are available now on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to podcasts. So if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we'd greatly appreciate a nice rating and review. And some of you might be listening to this show for the very first time. If that's the case, welcome. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Everything we do is included with a subscription. Uh, Happy New Year. You know, this is the first time we've spoke since the calendar flipped to 2020. Happy New Year, and uh, good luck next week. Uh, You're up for an award? Yes, uh, the FSGA Awards are next week. I'm up for Podcast Host of the Year. Smoothest voice. (laughs) Yes, our artwork is up for an award, too. (laughs) Uh, So shout out to Stu from our design team for making us great artwork. I'm glad that's getting recognized. But uh, yeah, there's lots to cover on this episode. I mean, Luis Robert gets a a big contract from the White Sox. And the thing that I'm really excited about with that is we don't have to play the game. We don't have to play the game of saying he's going to be up two weeks into the season or a month into the season. We're pretty confident now that he's going to be uh, part of the opening day lineup and an everyday player on this team. But it does lead to a problem where everyone's really excited about Luis Robert and the ADP is going to start creeping up. Uh, I saw our friend Matt Modica put a tweet out over the weekend that Robert had jumped into the top 75, I think it was, in one of the drafts that he saw going down. The ADP was closer to 100 overall prior to this extension. Uh, We're still talking about a guy who's 22 years old, has a decent amount of swing and miss in his game, and doesn't draw a lot of walks. And that kind of lines up to be like a Byron Buxton sort of tool set. But I think you got a lot more raw power already in the bat of Luis Roberts. That's one key difference for me. How do you see him kind of stacking up to other players who go inside the top 75 consistently if that's where the average draft position is going to fall? You know, I I know that he's got the, the speed. You know, in 2019, he stole 36 bases across three levels. So... You know, there's that speed is going to differentiate him between another player that came up last year that I think had just as much hype and was on the same team, Eloy Jimenez. And I bring up Eloy Jimenez because he had a good year. He had 31 homers. He did not end up, I think, giving the value that people expected of him. No, a little bit of missed time, too, because of an injury. So that worked. Uh, against Eloy last year. His ADP sits at 56 right now. Eloy's does. Yeah, Eloy's at 56. And I think the the fantasy comp in that range, inside that top 75 overall that uh, I would look to is Victor Robles. I think Victor Robles is maybe another guy that has a little less power than Luis Robert, but is a good reminder of how difficult it can still be. Even when you have a lot of success going through the minor leagues, as Luis Robert did, Victor Robles was underwhelming in some ways last year, despite hitting 17 homers and stealing 28 bases. Like there were some times where things didn't look great. Like the final result ended up being just fine. 
And based on where he was going a year ago, I think he was at least a little bit, if not quite a bit, profitable. Uh, but how do you see like full price on Robert holding up? I mean, do you see anything better than the 17 homers and, and 28 steals we got from Victor Robles a year ago coming from Luis Robert in year one? I, I do, but the reason I brought up Eloy is because Eloy had didn't really have strikeout rate problems in the minors, or at least we didn't think. So we thought he was going to come up and hit for contact and hit for power and hit for a good batting average. And he came up and hit for a 27% strikeout rate. So with Robert, yeah, I think that, yes, you're right, that the steals probably do put him in a better comparison with Victor Robles. But, you know, we know with Robert that there is a strikeout rate problem. And we know that it's worse than Victor Robles's. Um, we're looking at 17% swinging strike rate at double A last year, 21% swinging strike rate at triple A last year, uh, a hit tool that got a 40 from Fangraphs. So there's a good chance that Robert comes up and strikes out 30% of the time. And that's not in the projections. The projections say he's going to hit 270 with 27 homers and 25 stolen bases. That those projections are driving the the ADP right now, and that's why people are drafting him within the first top top 100. But if he strikes out 30% of the time, he's going to hit more like 240. And if he hits 240, is he going to get on base enough? Is he going to be at the top of the lineup? Is he going to be the bottom of the lineup? Is he going to steal a lot? The stolen bases were inconsistent in terms of quantity that he took off at each level too. The, sp- the speed is obviously there and someone on TV today said it was near Billy Hamilton-esque. So I assume he's going to steal some bases, but stolen bases do depend on your place in the lineup a little bit. So there's a, there's a lot going into it. And basically what I'm saying is, yo, I'm out. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely out if the price is going to push up into that top 75. I would have yeah. probably been in at the original price. And again, I'm referring to the current ADP around pick 100. That's where he's been going. That's not where he's going to go. And he might even go up higher than the top 75. He might get closer to the top 60 or top 50 overall, depending on what happens between now and opening day. That lack of walks does become problematic because if he strikes out a lot more with that promotion, the OBP is low. This is a really good lineup. He could go from being a guy projected to lead off to begin the season to a guy who hits eighth or ninth for the bulk of it. That could easily happen because that lineup is going to be a lot better this year than it has been in the last several years. And the White Sox have designs on going to the postseason. So they're not going to sit there and let a guy strike out 25 or 30 percent of the time with a 290 or 300 OBP and have that in their leadoff spot. They might keep playing him every day. I don't worry too much about the playing time unless he totally tanks. But his role in the lineup, I think, is very fluid, and there's a lot more downside there than people realize, at least in the short term. Yeah, and I'm trying to find, uh, you know, uh, uh, average draft position for Acuna, Ronald Acuna Jr., going into uh, 2018, because Acuna was a better prospect with fewer warts, but the same sort of power and speed potential. And I found a piece here from Scott White saying that Acuna was going uh, when when did he write this piece February so okay you know right around now and uh, and he was saying that he's going 137th 
If Acuna went 137th, Robert should not go 75th. Yeah, I, I buy that. And I think even as Acuna crept up, I remember drafting him around like 100 or 110 in the mm-hmm. FSWA draft that year. Like that was that was a reasonable price. And that was, again, a situation where Acuna did not have that contract. We knew we were going to wait at least a little while before getting him. And some of those questions have gone away. Okay, I guess there's more playing time questions. There's some of that, but it, we're still we're still talking about the difference of about two weeks. I think we all, with the moves the White Sox were making, if this extension hadn't happened, we're still expecting Luis Robert to be up by mid-April. I mean, if in order for you to, I mean, like uh, who who are some other top seventy-five guys this, right now? It can be so much more floor on these other guys, but uh, outfielders right. in that range, Tommy Pham has an ADP of 69. Like Pham, I mean, like Pham is doing everything you want Luis Robert to do, and he's proven he can do it over several years now. Maybe Robert can hit a few more homers, but maybe. Yeah, he might be the better player in the long run. I don't think there's a, a, a major problem arguing that, but I think in 2020, I'd give me Tommy Pham like every time. Yeah. So... That gives you an idea. Jorge Soler, you no know, speed, tons of power, kind of at the other end of that range around pick 80. Maybe maybe there I would consider Robert instead. But yeah, Soler's kind to, of a one-note guy. But I'd go to a different position. I, I, I think yeah. instead of saying, i got to force an outfielder here, I'd just, I don't know, I'd take Marcus Simeon or maybe grab Kirby Yates to get to closer early or Gary Sanchez. Like, There's a lot of players I like and better you know, for different an, reasons in that range. It is an interesting uh, place, though. It is a... It is around the shoot your shot moment in drafts where you've kind of taken the studs and you could take a pitcher, you could take a closer, or you could take a shot. So I guess that's why Robert has has gone to that level. But there is a, if there, you know, in somewhere between Fab and Solaire, I could see taking your shot. But, um, you know, Taking your shot used to happen later. There's kind of an inflation on on that on that moment. Yeah, it happens with the high end prospects. I mean, Vlad Jr. a year ago had a third round ADP. You had to pay the premium for him. You mentioned Eloy before. Um, it, the highest end guys keep creeping up every single year, uh, and guys that have even debuted and played a half season. You know, the ADP on those players, like Jordan Alvarez, doing the exact same thing ten years ago versus doing it last season has a much higher ADP going to 2020 than he would have had going into 2010. Like just the way it's the way people play now. It's a totally different, more aggressive uh, approach. Uh, let's shift the focus over to Shogo Akiyama. Uh, I think he's the the other guy that came up a couple times during prospect of the week segments. He was always kind of linked to uh, Yoshi Tetsugo just because we knew those guys were going to come over to the big leagues in 2020, but he lands in Cincinnati. And I don't think that was really on my radar when he posted. I didn't really think, okay, yeah, here here comes Akiyama to Cincinnati. Just I didn't didn't make that connection in part because I felt like they were pretty well set in the outfield between Winker and Senzel. Uh, some of the depth guys they have, you know, Aquino having some power last season when he came up, and even though he struggled in September, I thought he was going to be a regular for them. And Josh Van Meter, filler, and it just seemed like they were set as far as regular outfielders go. How do you see Shogo Akiyama fitting in with the Reds? I do think they have a need at center field, but I do also think it's interesting that they're going to play him at center field because there are already whispers coming out of Japan that he can't really play center field. But 
compared to the other guys they have on that roster, he's their center fielder. And I feel like, you know, he's a leadoff type. And I might move Winker down in the order. So I might, I might go Akiyama, Votto, Suarez, you know, Moose Winker. Yeah. It's a pretty left-handed lineup with the key players. I mean... Oh, I guess you have to do some lefty-righty. Uh, but yeah, this is, you know, Akiyama's another lefty. But the thing is that he doesn't have much power, so you don't really want him that far down in the order. You want to take advantage of his on-base percentage, I think, and put him in front of the the heavy the heavy hitters. So, you know, I, I think he'll be a guy who can hit 280. I looked at his Davenport translations, uh, you know, and then I tried to do basically a Marcel projection, which is just... A simple projection that looks at three times last year, or was it five times last year's numbers, three times the year before, and two times the year before divided by 10. And uh, that's the underpinning of a lot of projection systems. Of course, they got a lot, you know, more advanced since then. But this is, that's the basic idea of a projection system. And I did that with his Davenport translations, and I came up with a projection that basically had him hitting 306 uh, with a 370 on base percentage and a 430 slugging. It's a, it's a fun player. It's a good player in OBP. Uh, it's a player that might uh, hit 15 homers and steal 15 bases. It's basically Adam Eaton. Yeah, not a bad player. I mean, a, a guy that if he's leading off especially, piles up a lot of runs, doesn't hurt you in any category, and pretty much helps you across the board. Yeah, that's how I'd describe him. But I, I have seen projections. Jeff Erickson did a projection. I guess maybe uh, it was Cincinnati in particular. And he did a projection that had him down for 25 homers. And I don't know. <laughs> I mean, with the ball these days, like Freddie Galvis is hitting 20 homers. Maybe Shogo Akiyama can hit 20 homers. I wouldn't have thought that. But of course, the ball requires a little calibration. If he does hit 20 homers, then he has the sort of requisite power that it takes. And then he becomes kind of a cheaper Tommy Pham. Yeah, that's the high end. But I do think that Adam Eaton sort of comp makes a lot of sense. I'm looking at the Zips projection, too. Fangraphs had a, a three-year Zips projection broken out, and they're right up at the signing. That has him at 273, 331 OBP, 433 slug, 18 homers. Again, the part wait, definitely pushes wait, what that What was up. that? Uh, it's got him at 273, 331, uh, 433, 18 homers. Oh, my God. My, my slugging percentage projection was 433. <laughs> yeah, see? I mean, like... That that seems very reasonable, and then the the ten steals like okay that, yeah, that's that's a little bit of everything, and as long as the playing time is there, and it seems like it will be, they sign him to a three year deal. Like they're going to give him every chance to be yeah. a fixture in their lineup. He's their center fielder, I guess. I mean, there's Senzel uh, too, but um, the way that their roster looks now, he's their center fielder. I mean, I'm skeptical of Aristides Aquino anyway. I think yeah. he was exposed in September. He took a long time to unlock that power. He repeated double A you know, for a full season before uh, kind of putting it together a year ago at triple A. So I look at him as a guy that I was already skeptical of, and now I think there's a, a much clearer playing time concern that could emerge. A healthy winker. You know, with Akiyama now on this roster and a healthy Senzel, those are probably your primary three outfielders. And Aquino yeah. is a guy that plays as like a fourth outfielder plus. Well, he's also the righty. And you mentioned how lefty heavy this lineup is. Um, maybe they 
they try to leverage him as a as a uh, a guy that plays against lefties. Yeah, so. Wicker had some bad splits. So I'm not as excited about Aquino. His ADP was 150 going into like today. It's going to tank. That's coming that way down. That's coming down what at least 50 picks, probably 75 to 100, I would think. I'm not going anywhere near him inside the top 200. Yeah. Um, so you know, does it doesn't change much for me? I wasn't planning on that anyway. Uh, but what about Akiyama? Like, so if, if you think he's more of like an Adam Eaton type player, the earliest he's been picked so far is 189. I think because we didn't know where he's going to play. His ADP to this point is almost useless. So if he settles in around pick two hundred or even in the one seventy five range, are you comfortable taking him there? Yeah, Eaton is a a ten dollar player, uh, basically a back end top one hundred outfielder. Does that fit what you're saying? Yeah, Eaton goes not top one hundred outfielder. Sorry, top one hundred hitter, back end top one hundred hitter. Yes. Yeah, so that's it, pretty comparable to Eaton's price. He's just outside the top 200 overall. So, yeah, I could see because Jesus, of the park though. difference. That, that's the slight difference. Yeah, but Eaton, Eaton's in such an interesting spot, though, because projection systems always like him more than the draft does. And I think it's because he's kind of a high floor, low ceiling guy. And then also, he's a, he does he's that everything does everything thing which can be is good but like listen to the names that are around him Michael Conforto Ramon Laureano Brian Reynolds I mean these are all guys that have more upside and are going to get drafted ahead of Adam Eaton yeah yeah by 100 picks or more in some cases even though their dollar values in the auction calculator are nearly identical so uh that's a it's an interesting thing I, I'll just say this I think I'd rather end up with Adam Eaton because Adam Eaton's going to be super cheap. And I think that there's going to be some hype around Akayama that he may not deserve. It's fair. Yeah. I mean, if he cracks the 150 range in ADP, that's pretty high. And if you're getting Eaton 50 picks later, why not? If they're going to do very similar things, take the discount, do something else with that earlier pick where you would have had to take Akayama. I'd put them on my board, you know, maybe with Lorenzo Cain. And just wait until there's one left. Kane is one of those guys. I, I, mean, I watched him play pretty much every day last season. He was hurt for most of the year. And he tanked relative to what we'd seen in most of the previous five years. I mean, he's a four-plus win player mm-hmm. as much as a five- or six-win player during the previous five years. And he falls down to one of the worst years of his career because he played through injuries, still won the gold glove, uh, only had 18 steals only, which in this environment is pretty good, still hit 11 homers. And the average in a bad year where he was playing hurt bottomed out at 260. Like Lorenzo Cain's a really good player. He's old enough where you probably can't expect much more than 20 steals. If you get more, it's a bonus. That's great. But he's going to hit for a better average than he did last year. They're probably going to give him occasional maintenance days, which might help him avoid some of those nagging injuries. Like I'm definitely in on Kane as a a last year's disappointment sort of player who's underpriced right now by the market. I I'd, I'd probably have it uh just because of sort of track record and stuff. I'd probably have it Kane, Akiyama, Eaton. Um but you know, I don't see a real functional difference between the three. <laughs> I mean, in terms of here's a guy who's going to hit 280 and ballpark 15-15. That's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think the the little glimmer of a higher ceiling in the speed category is probably what keeps Kane 
right. top that group uh, for me. And then, then the unknown when it comes to Akiyama's power, I think. Um, and then Eaton is just the the solid. Uh, he's he's oatmeal, you know. <laughs> Nobody likes oatmeal, but hey, it helps you poop. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Washington Nationals. Uh, they've gone on a, a depth signing frenzy in the last week or so. It's the Brewers kind of own December. The Nationals are, are owning January. Starlin Castro, as Drupal Cabrera, Eric Thames, Will Harris, and Dan Hudson are now all members of the Washington Nationals. Uh, I've seen some reports from Ken Rosendahl suggesting that the Nats are still interested in Josh Donaldson. We'll see if he ends up going back to Atlanta or how that plays out. Uh, but as I looked at these guys, the first thought I had was, I wonder what this really means for Carter Keboom. We probably can't answer that question in full until the Donaldson situation plays out. But I still like Carter Keboom for 2020 because I don't think he has a lot left to prove at AAA. And I guess I'm, even though the Nats are interested, I don't really see them ending up with Donaldson. I see him ending up somewhere else and they're going to have to lean on some combination of Keyboom and Cabrera to pick up the playing time at third base, vacated by Anthony Rendon. Yeah, these two moves seen in concert, you could say that they were like an effort to change the tone of negotiations with Josh Donaldson, perhaps. You know, maybe Donaldson's pushing for a fifth year. You know, and they definitely don't want to, I don't think anybody wants to give him a fifth year. He's look how old he is. So, you know, I think that they could be doing this and saying, okay, you know, we don't like the way this is going, or we're just going to do these. And if Donaldson asks about it, or his reps say, well, no, no, we can keep talking. Like, there's definitely still room. We can platoon um, Astruble and, and Castro and, and be a better team for it. Castro is a right hander, Astruble is, is a switch hitter. Astruble is, you know, 34 years old himself. So, you know, and Howie Kendrick is 36 and a right-hander. So, you know, they they have depth, um, and they could still put Donaldson in there, but they can also say to Donaldson, hey, if it takes the fifth year, you know, we'll just we'll mix and match and make it happen. So I, I, I do think that this sort of smells like he's not going to go there. And um, perhaps it's the, the, the Braves that make it happen then. Um, you know, the Austin Riley and Johan Camargo currently project to be league average, you know, third baseman together, but by signing Donaldson, they can also add basically to depth in Atlanta by making Riley and Camargo more depth pieces than starting pieces. So, uh, and, and I think that lineup in Atlanta could use a second big bopper, whereas maybe the Astros, maybe the Astros, maybe the Nationals kind of see this as a moment to retool and take a step back, let Soto and, uh, and Victor Robles, um, you know, develop another year, uh, and then go onto the market next year, uh, with something that looks like, you know, 30, 40, $50 million to spend. I so, think having a guy like Robles who was in the bottom third of the lineup for all or most of 2019, it's a really nice luxury to have because you, you assume he's going to get at least a little better, if not a lot better, from last year to this year. And he was already pretty good last year. Like He could be a superstar right in the heart of the order with Juan Soto. That, that could happen. It's not unrealistic to me at all. So if if that's how they have to let it play out, they're fine. Like They're going to be okay. Like Sure, they're a better team with Josh Donaldson than not getting him. 
but they have some guys with a ton of growth potential who could kind of collectively fill some of the void caused by that Rendon departure. Yeah. And, you know, there's some, there's something to like about, you know, Castro and Estrubal Cabrera just been like fairly steady performers for a while that both make contact, you know, have decent on base percentages. You know, they're not great in the field, but I, I wouldn't label either a butcher yet. And, um, the one, you know, I, the one thing that I could see happening is just one of these guys falling off. I mean, when you look at the way the projections work, Jeff Zimmer just had a piece out about how, um, you know, how stable are projections uh, by age group. And he just found that, you know, by the time you get to about 32, um, there are large drop-offs with respect to projections uh, with, with, with hitters. So as Drupal Cabrera being 34 and Howie Kendrick being 36 – there's a little bit there where you can say, hey, you know, they did play well last year. And the projections say they're going to be good to get again next year. But things happen. You know, crap happens when you're, when you're 34, 35, 36 as a player. So when, if that happens to them, and it could come in the form of injury or just drop off and play. Maybe the power goes away, something like that. What you can do is make one of them, Cabrera or Castro, depth, and here comes Kiboom. And I kind of think that's likely. If they don't have... Donaldson on this team, I still think that Carter Keboom is going to get like 400 plus plate appearances. Yeah, he's got a 60 grade arm, so he has the arm to play third base. When they brought him up, when Trey Turner was hurt, he was playing shortstop. Like, if, if they think he has the athleticism to play short. Well, and there's, and there's also Trey Turner getting hurt. So there's a lot of different, and he's done that a fair amount recently. So there's, there's a lot of different ways for Keboom. He's the, he's the next guy up. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. The price is right around the 275 to 300 overall range. If it slides at all because of the Cabrera and Castro additions, sign me up. I'm already interested uh, in Key Boom. I know it was love, ugly. love him in draft and hold. Love to put him on a bench in like a 15 teamer uh, or do one of those things uh, like in an only or a 15 teamer where you draft him in a starting position, but then you also draft. Uh, you know, a veteran, like you could draft him ahead of Castro, right? And, and draft Castro on your bench uh, and have be starting Castro at the beginning of the season and, and be hoping that Keeboom comes up. And, and what, what I think Keeboom can do when he comes up, I, I know that his strikeout rate was bad when he came up, but his whiff rate wasn't. And I've seen enough of him live and then also in the stats to say that I think that he like takes the situation, looks at it. He's 22. Every time he's done this before, he's come up to a big level and been young. The first time he's done it, he's been like, he's been okay. He's held his own. And then the second time he's done it, he's rocked it. So I feel like, you know, he came up and he was not that good, but it was 43 plate appearances, 22 years old, major leagues. I think next time he's definitely going to come up and have a strikeout rate that matches his swing and strike rate. So I think he's going to strike out around 20, 20 to 23%. Um, and I think he's going to have like 20 homer power and, you know, five to 10 stolen bases with a, with a decent OBP. So that's a more, a little bit more of a deep league player, but it's a really fun one for certain formats. Yeah. 15 teams and deeper for sure. I think there's easily a path for him to be relevant in 12s this year. I'd even take a chance on drafting him in a 12. I think the challenging thing in that type of league, it's something we've talked about before is having the discipline to cut him loose 
if he does go to AAA for a few weeks to begin the season, or if he's being used more like a super utility guy while the mm-hmm. veterans soak up a little more playing time to begin the season. That's he's when not it gets necessarily going to be an easy cut. Yeah, because yeah. you're gonna you're gonna want you're gonna say, oh, I'm gonna hold on to him, but then you know, twelve teamers, you kind of have to be fluid. But yeah, the K rates and the minors at most stops right around twenty percent. I think the walk rate's been consistently good as well. One twenty three WRC plus is a twenty one year old AAA. Absolutely, still interested in Carter Keyboom. Uh, you know, Eric Thames. We kind of know what he is. Big side platoon guy, low average, decent OBP, cheap power. I don't think that changes a whole lot for him going to DC. Looking at the bullpen and thinking about Sean Doolittle, how safe do you think he is as the closer? I mean, most of the risk, I think, with Doolittle tends to come from the injury history. Do you look at him as a guy who is actually a good target right now with an ADP just outside the top 200? I kind of think Hudson's going to leave the, the bullpen in saves. And the reason I say that is, you know, a lot of times you have to look at usage. You know, I, I've sort of identified three main things for closers. It's usage, handedness. Uh, velocity and strikeout and so it's, it's four things actually <laughs> um, and usage is the most important and if you look at usage the last usage it was Hudson as the closer basically Doolittle kind of lost his job in the in the postseason I was surprised that it played out that way and I think when it was only Harris joining the bullpen I felt better about Doolittle but now that yeah. it's Harris and Hudson they have that extra depth maybe they play the matchups a bit more I mean maybe it's a dreaded 15 15 10 sort of thing or you know hudson gets 20 doolittle gets 15 harris gets five like i I could see it being a two or three headed monster as far as where the saves actually go not necessarily by design but because of the various injuries and you know daniel hudson uh, we talked about it when the nats won the world series come back from multiple tommy john surgeries too like he's he's a guy that you you feel really good for but you also look at him and say i really hope he doesn't break down again uh, because he's got a, a very scary injury history of his own. Yeah, and they kind of they kind of split the different things where you know Doolittle has the best projected strikeout rate, but he's a left-hander. Daniel Hudson has the best velocity, but he has the second best strikeout rate and the worst injury history. But he's a righty. Will Harris kind of ends up, you know, I think third, where the velocity and the strikeout rate are good. Uh, but kind of second or third in, in, in most of the categories. So it's definitely Hudson and Doolittle uh, and then Harris for me in that sort of order. And I think with the handedness and the velocity, I'm, I'm thinking Hudson is it. Also, Doolittle, you know, this is the reason the handedness is an important thing is that lefties, closers are lefties about half as often as you'd expect given the population of pitchers. And that may be changing in baseball because it used to be that you had lefty one-out guys. You had lefties that came in just for matchups. And with the three-pitcher, the three-batter minimum, uh, you know, who's to say that that will necessarily exist in the future? Although I will say that you can bring in a lefty to face a lefty or two if the ending, if you think the inning's going to end, you know, because that there's no three-batter minimum after the inning. It's just within the inning. Um any case, Doolittle is their only lefty, unless Royanus Ilias is in there too. Uh, but there's a kind of a big drop off between the two. So I have a feeling that they're going to go the way of a lot of the more advanced bullpens where Doolittle comes in if there's two lefties in the ninth inning and Hudson comes in if there's not. Yeah, I could I could see it playing out that way as well. So definitely a case where 
I would like Sean Doolittle if I knew he had the job, but I think this situation is murky enough with only the one other lefty in Elias even on the roster right now. I mean, they don't even yeah. have like a scrubby lefty that we've never heard of on the depth chart. It is all righties and then Ronis Elias. Uh, that's going to make Doolittle I think a little more vulnerable to having to play the matchups late in right, games. Right, because you could have the seventh inning. People talk about, oh, sometimes the most important at-bats are in the seventh inning. True. One of those guys can be a lefty. Yeah. So you could have Doolittle throwing the most important innings with the with the with the air quotes, but Hudson getting the saves. Let's talk about the draft and hold league that I was in. Uh, I started it when we were recording our last episode back on the twenty third of December. It wrapped up on Sunday. It's a fun format for anyone who hasn't played it. It's a fifty round draft. There are no in season pickups, just weekly lineup changes, uh, hitters and pitchers on Mondays, and then only hitters Friday to Sunday. So I kind of unintentionally stacked Yankees early. Uh, Garrett Cole, Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Aroldis Chapman. That happened. I don't. I don't feel bad about that at all because the Yankees score a lot of runs and Garrett Cole's awesome. So you know, no concern. And Chapman there. is like seems like kind of by far and away the best reliever, or best closer. There's you know I know there's Yates and there's some other guys, but it's Chapman. You just know he's the guy as long as he's healthy, right? I think this is a question that came up, must have been on Slack or something. Someone was asking me about Josh Hader. They said, is is Josh Hader really safe enough to be the first reliever drafted with Corey Knable getting healthy and considering how the Brewers have used him in the past? I mean, he's different. 138 Ks last year. You, yeah. don't, you don't get that from a reliever normally. 75 and two-thirds innings. Uh, he's one of those... Few guys that if he loses the job, you'd still want on your team. Kyle. Yeah, you'd still use him. I mean, because yeah. the ratios sub three ERA each the last three seasons, whip under one all three years he's been in the big leagues. Uh, an amazing staff filler for even like a shallow mixed league. But how many saves do you think he's really going to get? Like, do you see Knable kind of pushing Hater back into a flexible role? Does he run into the same kind of problems? I don't know if it's the same as Doolittle because they're different. Hater can probably have slightly longer outings by comparison. I just think we have proof that Craig Council will manage his bullpen in a way where he doesn't care if Josh Hader's getting the last three outs. He's going to use him when he needs him the most, and he handles his bullpen so well that there is some potential downside to taking Hader as the first closer off the board if you can't trade for more saves later on if you need them. I think the Knable issue is more of a second half issue. Not that I think that Knable only pitch in the second half. I just don't think that he'll necessarily have the full spring in the same way as other people. And mostly teams have been pushing Tommy John rehab to, you know, 13, 14 months because some of the numbers say that you have better outcomes if you push it that far. So if we do that, then, you know, Knable's getting into games, you know, maybe. Uh, sometime in April, but maybe it's May. And if he does that, then I don't think he just jumps in and is the closer right away. So uh, I think he's fairly safe. Yeah, I think the first part of the season is a great call. At the very earliest, I don't think we're going to see Corey Knable before mid-April. I think an IL stint to begin the season is basically a certainty at this point, and then how long that IL stint is is a factor. Plus, when he comes back, you know, you're going to have some days where he's not available initially because, you know, right, yeah, they're going to be tougher and, on that. Yeah. yeah, so you're going to be a little more careful. So maybe that that concern with Hader is slightly 
uh, overestimated right now. Uh, the thing that happened to me in this draft, I was drafted from the sixth spot, by the way. Cole Judge, Sale Stanton, Pham, Correa, Chapman, Donaldson in the first eight rounds. Loved the foundation. Things were falling into place. Got a lot of stuff I wanted as it went along. Shohei Otani was still there in round 11. So we're talking the 15-team league. That was pick 157, 156 is where I took him. And I got clarity on how exactly he can be used in NFBC leagues. He's going to be a swing player this year. So you can change him between the UT spot and the pitcher spot from week to week. But if he starts off as your UT on Monday, he, of course, can't be moved to a pitcher spot for the weekend. He can only be moved to the bench if you don't want him in your lineup over the weekend. Uh, If he's a pitcher on Monday, he's locked in as a pitcher all week because you don't change your pitchers on Friday in those leagues. So I've heard some different opinions on this. Some people don't think he has that much value because he's not going to make two start weeks like ever. Or if he does, it's going to happen maybe once, like a Monday-Sunday thing in a perfect storm. Uh, I've heard that in best ball, because he's only going to start maybe three to four games a week, potentially as a hitter, that he's not going to have enough big weeks to push into lineups. I just didn't have a good plan for him. It just seemed like he was much too talented to pass up at that price in round 11. And maybe this draft and hold format is one of those places where having that flexibility to move him around wherever I need him the most ends up being a relative sweet spot for you know, using him throughout the year. Yeah, I, I go back to that labor story where, you know, I had him as a pitcher for the first half of the year, and then I ended up actually using him as a hitter in the second half of the year. So there's, in draft and hold, I think there's more avenues where he can be useful to you. Maybe you get, like, I got down to my last pitchers where I was pitching Jorge Lopez in my draft and hold because I just ran out of pitchers, you know? So just having a guy who's both a hitter and a pitcher gives you a slot on your draft and hold roster. You're like, he could come in and be my guy, you know, and it won't be that bad, you know. Uh, but that's, you know, when you're playing NFBC, like regular main event type stuff, I, you know, I had a, heard a lot of, from people saying he's basically going to be a pitcher and he's going to be a pitcher coming off of Tommy John and he's never going to get the double double thing and he's going too high uh for for his skills as a pitcher blah you know and a lot of the stuff i understand uh, i was about to say blah 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 but you know <laughs> a lot of the stuff i understand i stick by the fact that he's an elite talent on both sides of the ball i love his stuff i love his how hard he hits the ball i love the the where, where you drafted him and i think that there is one way to use him that is interesting for nfpc and for your draft and hold which is there's a high likelihood he's a weekend starter and if he's a weekend starter, that means you could hit him Monday through Friday. He's going to take, you know, maybe Friday and Saturday off. Uh, and then you could have someone on your bench that hits for him over the weekends. Yeah, I mean, if, if you know the schedule, you, maybe you're going to get four games, three and four games in the early part of the week, just like you would from anybody else. And you're getting that from a guy that on hitting talent what is he, like a top 25 hitter? I mean, I think you compared him as a pure hitter to like a Christian Yelich type hitter. I mean, he's... He's that he's, good. He's really good. I mean, look at his career numbers. He's played 220 games now for the Angels in two seasons. Shohei Otani's hit 40 home runs. He's stolen 22 bases. He's hitting 286 with a 351 OVP and a 532 slugging percentage. And yeah. I know playing time is huge. I know, I understand the importance of playing time. And the machinations of, of like how you have to move in your roster. But... It, 
you know, what if you could add, you know, three games of Yelich to, you know, uh, two two or three games of, I don't know, Ryan Reynolds or, you know, maybe you got lower, Eaton, you know? If you, if you Frankenstein that, you could get, you know, a first or second round talent out of two guys who took much later. Yeah. So I, I just, I saw enough things that could go right that I sort yeah. of said, okay, I'm going to pick them and I'm going to figure it out later. And I think where I really get tripped up is if I start thinking about them for, you know, the Rotowire Online Championship or the NFBC main event, the, the 12 and 15 team formats with the seven man bench. I could see him being a problem player in leagues where you're making moves all the time. Like I could see that being a little bit more of an issue, but if we get some sort of clarity on his schedule, or if he's hitting more than we expect to begin the season, because they're backing off some of his pitching workload early in the year, you might get some surplus hitting value early on before he goes into that more like even sort of two way player schedule. Yeah. Yeah. What if he's hitting five or you know five days a week, you know, how much is that that lost game on average going to cost you? If he's hitting five games a week and he's, you know, just rehabbing his arm to begin the season, basically, or, or taking it slowly, then you get a month of a great hitter and you get a month of a one start pitcher and then something happens in the rest of your roster and you just need him in one place or the other. Uh, that's that's how it worked out for me in labor is that he was a good player for me and I ended up using him both as a pitcher and a hitter and uh, I had no regrets and drafted him again the next year just as a hitter. So uh, I feel like this is a, one of those deals where you kind of get the elite talent. I do. There is like a give and play with like where you draft him. Like, are you going to draft Like, you're not going to do that. It's almost like the Robert thing. You're not going to do that at pick 70. Um, and pick 100 still feels pretty good, pretty high for that because you're going to get at pick 100, you're going to get other guys who are going to be very good hitters and very good pitchers and going to be easier to use. But at pick 150, uh, it starts to become, you know, hey, this this is the only guy here who's elite at anything. Yeah, it was Otani versus Buxton among hitters at that point. And there's a lot of lot of risk with Buxton too. It's, you know, what if you just get him and he's injured all year and you you can't decide to drop him or not because you don't have a DL slot or whatever. That does sound like something I would do. <laughs> Might have happened last year. <laughs> yeah, that's probably happened before. Uh, it's like, oh, Byron Buxton out six weeks. Well, no, I'll just wait this out. He'll be fine. And then he, then he fouls the ball off his ankle in rehab, and it's you know, it's three to four more weeks, but. I, I still like Buxton. Again, I was one of the few people that wanted him going into last season. I just think there's uh, a ton there with the speed alone, but there's more for him to still kind of grow into skills-wise. We saw some flashes of that around yet another injury-shortened season a year ago. Uh, this draft really kind of hammered home the, the Nate Lowe situation. I drafted him, I think, in the 16th round. And I had immediate regrets. I just started thinking <laughs> about it. I'm like, oh, this is bad. You, you know, G-Man Choi is still there. Satsugo is really more of a DH than an outfielder. Like, it, it could go wrong playing time-wise for Nate Lowe pretty easily. I, I don't think it's a you-can't-draft-him sort of thing. It's that I overdrafted him. He should be going probably four to five rounds later. You know, He should be going in the 16th round as that roster is currently constructed. Near, near, the, end of the, near the end of the draft, maybe even. Uh, I, the one thing I would say about that is, amazingly, well, I guess Tutsugo is not in 
the Fangraph system. <laughs> uh, so you can just replace low uh, with Tsutsugo probably uh, as the Fangraph step chart is. But I would say that A, uh, depth charts have, uh, for the Rays in particular, have been very hard to figure out preseason. And B, uh, when I asked someone I knew at the Rays about, um, you know, where, what was going on with Choi, basically, mm-hmm. and Tsutsugo and Lo and Diaz, and they said basically, you know, we're still working on this. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was another move before spring training. And um, in some ways, I see Choi as the least of those three talents or four talents. If you put Yandy, Choi, Lo, and Tsutsugo, you know, in a foursome, uh, I would say I would say Choi is last, which gives a little bit of uh, daylight for Low. I wonder who the best golfer of the four of those guys would be. <laughs> right, foursome. <laughs> just want like Yandy Diaz driving the cart just recklessly. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to <laughs> picture it all in my head. No, but I, I think Choi. Maybe this has come up on our show before. Maybe it's something I've thought about and didn't talk about. I can't remember, but he's kind of like the last guy in, even though he's atop the depth chart at first base. And we've seen how the Rays have handled this spot in similar spots in the past. They do see a lot of corner guys that come through as very much replaceable. Whereas Nate Lowe, being younger, having really good numbers at AAA last year, he had a 141 WRC plus, tore up high A and double A in 2018 there's a much higher ceiling there. Like G-Man mm-hmm. Choi can be a good player and Nate Lowe can be a better one and the Rays can see that. And the Rays might say, hey, we got this surplus. Let's turn G-Man Choi into uh, another reliever or something. Yeah. That that could happen. And it could happen you know, before pitchers and catchers even report to spring training. Yeah, yeah. And I think Choi, I think, amazingly, I think he has an option left. Does he? Oh man, because I, I thought I thought part of the reason he bounced around a couple of years ago through a lot of good teams were were interested in him and, and temporarily had him. Yeah, he is out of options. So that's oh, he's out of options. Okay. Yeah, so that's where, that's where I think really good teams are always looking for that flexibility. So I yeah. think that's the kind of thing that does work against Choi as the Rays try to solve their depth puzzle in the next couple of weeks. That's crazy. The Brewers and the Rays had him, and it's like, of course. <laughs> he was a Yankee for a little while in 2017. Like they, they always, seemingly these last few years have been great at finding bench players, fringe 25 man roster players who are really productive. You know, yeah. like they were all on him. Three. Oh, the Rays teams. had him, and then lost him to the Brewers, and then got him back from the Rays. They got him from the back from the Brewers. Yeah, uh, he's he's good enough to play. I, this, yeah, this this is this is. Where the concern about Lowe comes from is like, well, Lowe has options. If they don't get something they want for Choi, they can see how it plays out with Choi for a bit. And, you know, then Lowe's just the tough and, cut that I don't want to make. You know, they're playing Yandy Diaz a third, who I heard someone describe as the DH is DH. <laughs> and uh, they're playing Yandy Diaz a third. They're playing uh, Hunter Renfro righty in, in right. Uh, Tsutsugo may. Playing right, son. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping it's a little bit like the the Avi Sale Garcia thing, where he's a better defender than people have been giving him credit for, and Mm -hmm. then he ends up being a little more versatile defensively than our initial impressions and reports 
you know, would suggest. Right. And if, if he can play some outfield, uh, that opens it up so that you could have Tsutsugo uh, and Choi and Diaz on the same team. But, you know, you're right. It's still, it's still I think Lowe's still going to end up starting the season in the minor leagues unless there's that, that deal that's, that might be on the horizon. Um, but I think as a, as a late guy, you know, there's all these uh, veterans ahead of him. Diaz gets hurt all the time. Lowe seems like the first guy up. Yeah, it, it's just a matter of patience and then roster construction if you have them in a, a non-draft-and-hold format. If you have those limited bench spots, you don't always have the luxury of waiting it out, even for great players. I'll remind everyone again, Kyle Tucker, Forrest Whitley, I had a lot of them last year. <laughs> that was not the best use of limited bench spaces. Uh, this is probably the most Eno question on this entire outline for today's show. Uh, but it came up because I ended up with a couple of the Braves' young starters. Which of the Braves' young starters are you most interested in for 2020? And that group can include Bryce Wilson, Kyle Wright, Ian Anderson, other prospects that you think are, are close. I mean, how do you how do you kind of rank those guys against each other? Do any of them stand out to you as better darts than the others on that list? I don't have Ian Anderson's movement and velocity numbers and all i know about him is he's low spin uh, which is a little bit weird given his strikeout rates and the fact he's a breaking ball guy so i sort of shrug when it comes to ian anderson he probably has the highest like baseball america type ranking uh, of uh of the group with like the highest high highest peak uh, but in terms of the guys who have played, so Bryce Wilson, Kyle Wright, Tuki Toussaint, and Sean Newcomb, um, there is an interesting thing that happens when you look through the numbers. And what I've got that I'm really excited about are the stuff numbers uh, uh, from Driveline. And so they've done the same kind of research we've, that we've done in the public sphere Um uh, but I, they've also buffeted it with, you know, real time experiments in terms of guys they've had coming through, uh, throwing in front of the rap sodas and stuff. So they can kind of combine it with uh, experimental uh, situations better than than a lot of us out here uh, doing spreadsheet work can do. Uh, so anyway, I've got their stuff numbers, and when you look, uh, something kind of comes out. So Bryce Wilson. Um, you know, he throws 94, uh, but uh, come on, Bryce Wilson. No, he's in here. He oh, spells I'm it with an with S. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, Bryce Wilson's fastball um, rates as an 89 out of 100. And uh, his changeup uh, actually rates as his best pitch, and his breaking balls are league average. That would surprise me because he throws his breaking balls more uh, and he throws 94, but he has a straight fastball. So I think Bryce Wilson is last on my list. Hmm. Uh, the one thing that, that separates him, though, is he has the best command plus numbers of these of this group. Uh, second plus command plus numbers, though, belong to Kyle Wright. And Kyle Wright has... Uh, a 92 fastball, which is, you know, also not amazing. 
but his breaking balls are 109 and 119. Uh, so he has plus breaking balls. Um, and he has okay command. Newcomb has bottom 10 command. It's not, it's even worse than that. Because if you look at command, the bottom is almost all uh, command plus here. The bottom is almost all uh, relievers. So in terms of starters, here are the only starters that had a worse command plus last year than Sean Newcomb, uh, who was kind of a reliever, I know. But Jordan Yamamoto, Joey Lucchese, Denilson Lemet. So fourth worst uh, command when you look at his stuff numbers, Newcomb, all of his pitches are above average and a couple of his pitches are, are plus. So there's always this like sort of, you know, you're trying to figure out the relationship between stuff and command and these things matter. And that's why I'm going to take right because he has probably the second best stuff and the second best command in the group. I keep looking at Sean Newcomb and thinking he is just going to be an excellent reliever on this team. Like yeah. A huge part of what they do. I know they, they spent a lot of money on Will Smith. You know, Luke Jackson at times looked pretty good last year. They still have Shane Green. They got Chris Martin. They have Mark the Shark. But I think when you add Newcomb, you go something like Newcomb, Jackson, Smith in some order at the end of games, that's really tough. I know, and it's crazy that Melanson is, is the reliever, but, I mean, it's the closer there. Uh, and But Green, if you limit him to only to righties, has great numbers. It's only against lefties that he suffers. So, you know, really, I think it's going to be, yeah, I think, I mean, Martin is there. And then Darren O'Day is amazing. I think they're going to, their starters are going to come out of the game in the fifth inning. Which with that group, they do have a few guys that you've already got arm injury concerns about. I mean, Soroka, Freed being a younger starter, uh, Fulte's had thoracic Fulte's outlet. secondaries are not great. So if you could get him for four innings, throwing, you know, heat, you know, four and two-thirds or something, you might be happy with that. Yeah. I, I do like what they've been able to accomplish, though, uh, getting a lot of pitching that's major league ready in some capacities. All right, so you have Wright uh, over Wilson and Wilson over Newcomb. Is that right? Something like that. If we're talking starters, uh, I might not have Newcomb last because I, I do think that the that kind of poor command – uh, the the list of of pitchers that I just listed for you are all guys that could be relievers in the next three years. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It just it seems like he has the most to overcome. Whereas, you know, with Bryce Wilson, he's the youngest of those three guys. I think he's <clears throat> comparable in age to Ian Anderson. He can put those things together. He can change that pitch mix a little more easily. He could still add a little velo. Like there's a, there are a lot of ways for Bryce Wilson to turn the corner. I think it takes more for Sean Newcomb to do that at this point. Yeah, Fangrass has Newcomb as the fifth starter, but it, it's just, it, it could be, it could be. I mean, all right, so let's let's say among starters, I'm going to go right, Newcomb, Wilson, um, Anderson. And I just think that Anderson, there's no need to push it. I mean, I guess he could come in and blow the doors off of spring training, but, you know, Wright and Wilson pitched well and, and everyone was so excited about them and then they, they, they shot the bed last year. They did. So, you know... I wouldn't get too excited about any of these. In fact, my favorite starting pitcher on this team with regards to price is Max Fried. I think that people don't understand that he had like a top 50 strikeout minus walk rate last year. Not even top 50. I think it's like top 30 um, last year. And 
there's no real reason to to think he can't do that again. Um, and there's some reason to think he could even improve his uh, uh, his numbers a little bit. But he had the 25th best strikeout minus walk rate right there between Noah Syndergaard and Zach Wheeler and ahead of Aaron Nola. So uh, my, he's my Max Fried is my favorite starting pitcher on that team. Um, I mean, I, yeah, Soroka is, but I think that with Soroka's strikeout rate uh, being around league average and, um, you know, the price that's going to go along with him, uh, I may not end up with a lot of shares. Fulte has a bad slider or then he has a good slider and it's hard to tell when that's when each is going to happen. Um, Hamels is an interesting uh, pitcher that is probably going to be better than people think, but I also, you know, will always end up reaching for upside over him until late or in sort of the deepest of leagues kind of situation. And then if you're talking about a fifth starter for a team that has five young starters like this, I think throwing the dart at Newcomb, Wilson, or Wright, it is a dart. And so you just have to be careful about, you know, how much you invest there. Yeah, I went pretty late with Wilson and Wright in draft and hold, thinking, nice. hey, one of them could win the job initially. Another starter could get hurt. They could be in the rotation together. Like there's, yeah. Or if, if one gets the job and fails, the other one might be the replacement. Uh, just happen to be cheap prices. But the Max Freed point is a really good one. I don't think people realize um, just how good that K-BB was. ADP in the NFBC League so far, just inside the top 150 overall. There's a lot of upside there, but the floor is probably a lot better than, than people think. Yeah. Let's get to a couple mailbag questions. This one is a, a good kind of broad question. At least I adapted it to become a very broad question. It comes from Scott. Uh, he writes, how do you adjust your approach and your rankings when you're dealing with a points league instead of a rotisserie league. Most of the conversations we have on this show, we're talking about five by five leagues. A lot of people do play uh, in points leagues. Scott was playing a, a draft and hold last year. Uh, and that particular league was set up where uh, hits were worth one, homers were worth three, RBIs and runs were one each, steals were worth three, and then walks were worth one. And then for pitchers, it was. Uh, minus 1.5 for an earned run, plus 1.5 for every inning pitched, a three-point quality start bonus, six points for saves, uh, one-and-a-half points for a strikeout, three points for a win, and then uh, minus 0.5 for a hit or a walk allowed. So you start to think about points leagues, I, at least I, I think of them like, I want to run some kind of custom projection tool. right? We know... Uh, a few different places out there have different tools that do this. I talk about the Fangraphs auction calculator sometimes. You can play around, customize that quite a bit. Uh, Rotowire has draft software and some pages where you can punch in actual point systems. I, what I do is actually, if I play a lot of rotisserie leagues and I have to play in a points league, I run projections for both side by side and just kind of look at, at some of the players that are much higher and much lower in one format versus the other because... I think we still are, are in an era where you can go into a draft and not everybody in the room has necessarily come in with some custom rankings. You know, they might have picked up a magazine, they might have picked up a cheat sheet somewhere that was geared towards five by five that doesn't capture some of the unique wrinkles that might be, you know, a part of a point system like the one that Scout outlined for us. Yeah. Yeah. The Fangraphs auction calculator, I think, can be your friend here. You can actually input uh, your own point system in there. And I think from what I see, all of them are in there. Uh, hits plus walks, maybe not, but, um, 
hits and walks are in there. So you could you could you could get pretty close on the oxygen calculator. And uh, what I would do is run that, and then you know if you know VLOOKUP on Excel, uh, you can kind of Google it. Uh, one thing you could do is just do what you're saying is is run it for your point system as close as you can get it. Run it for a roto thing, um, and then compare the two. VLOOKUP says, "Hey, I've got Gary Sanchez here. Go find Gary Sanchez in the other spreadsheet and return the value from the other spreadsheet. That way, you'll get the two values. You can come. You can compare the two, uh, and you and you can then sort for the differential, and you'll see, boom! Oh, look, this is the type of player that's undervalued." Um, and that'll give you kind of a cheat sheet for players that you can target, even if you don't kind of go dollar for dollar on the auction calculator, it'll give you a, a player list of, oh, these are, and what I think, you know, looking at this, I would assume that, uh, bulk starters are the most valuable in there. Yeah. I, I just ran this league through the, the fan graphs tool, which yeah, you can, you can cover all the stats pretty easily on that one. And it looks similar at the very top. Cole Scherzer, Verlander, DeGrom, Sale. Yes, but how does five. they compare to the hitters? Are the pitchers perhaps more valuable than the hitters at the top? The, let's see. Uh, I got to sort. It sorts them individually. So, yeah. They, the dollar values it spits out for pitchers are way higher. Yes. That's what way I'm saying. Way higher. So, like, yeah. you're talking, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be probably more aggressive with pitching in this form. First round pick. Garrett Cole, Jer- J- Jacob Degrom, you might even go pitcher pitcher in this format, um, and then and then try to do bulk hitters. Yeah, because Cole, Scherzer, Verlander, and Degrom are above thirty among pitchers, and then uh, just only Trout is above thirty. Yelich is just below at twenty nine seven. Acuna, yeah. The, the way you can see it is you kind of just think about it. quality starts and wins. Uh, are worth uh, three. They're worth three each. So, like a, a good outing from a, from a pitcher can get you six points. Uh, for a hitter to get you know six points, it'd have to hit a home run and steal steal a base. Yeah, yeah. So that particular scoring system, it, it, it may be by design to make pitchers more valuable. Sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes a commish sets up a points league. Uh, and they think they've got something that's really close to five by five, and it's just not. And if you take your your five by five mindset in, you end up not getting enough pitching or not leveraging the scoring system to your advantage. Maybe the whole room fails to capitalize, but you can capitalize on that and end up with a much better roster by using a custom tool like that uh, before you go in. But I do like to compare them side by side because I'm hardwired for five by five. That's the, the overwhelming uh, majority of leagues I play are, are five by five roto. Uh, I do the same thing, though, if, if a category switch happens. Like, uh, Tout Wars uses OBP instead of average. So I run average projections, I run OV, OBP projections, and I just sort of highlight players that move up a lot or down a lot. Like, I know who some of those players are off the top of my head, but you just want to make sure that you're you're not paying for something that isn't there or that you're, you're overlooking a player because they're, you know, they're a big, big walker that has a low OBP. Those players swing quite a bit in value. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely for any draft, try to have a set of rankings. Try to find a place where you can at least get as close as possible to your settings. And, and you know, it's an auction calculator. And you may not be doing an auction, but it still sorts the players in order, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we got another question here. This comes in from James. He's starting up a, a new dynasty league, shooting for an 8-12 team league, 36-player rosters. 
uh, 25 keepers each year, so a very large portion of the roster will be kept. Uh, he's going to use OBP, and it's going to be a head-to-head categories league, fab once a week, and it's going to be a snake draft, uh, so no auction. So he writes, assuming it's going to be a 10-team league, in what round should the first minor leaguer be drafted, and who should it be? So if you're starting a dynasty league or a keeper league from scratch, you know when do you start taking the elite prospects in that format? You don't? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a 10-team it's league, and it should be pretty easy uh, season to season to find 25 keepers that are major leaguers. So I would assume, you know, I have a 20-team league, you know, where when I'm competitive uh, and we keep 28, when I'm competitive, it's hard for me uh, to keep a minor leaguer. I'm keeping Sam Hilliard this year, and that might be the only one. Uh, and he's a major leaguer. So um, I would say later than your the other people drafting. Um because I think you can still get, you know, a very exciting player, um, a sixty value, sixty future value type player, uh, a Royce Lewis, a Joe Adele, or you know maybe just a step below a Brendan Rogers, um, you know Christian Robinson in Arizona. Uh, you know, or let's say you have to go down to Elliot Ramos or Alex Kirilov, 50 value players. Those are still really fun bats that are close in in many cases, close to the major leagues. Um, and, uh, and should be available after Joe Adele goes, you know? So, uh, you know, the first one should be Joe Adele. I think Royce Lewis should be, should be up there. Um, I guess Wander Franco should be, but it's going to take a while for he's up there. So those, you know, those are, those are immediately come to mind. I'm sure I'm missing somebody that you can fill in, but I might miss those guys and take more major leaguers and, and be competitive in the first year. Um, if I can take like an Alex Kirilov, like five rounds later. So yeah, I think a 10 team dynasty league versus a 20 team dynasty league is an entirely different world. I mean, the way I would play it for a 20 team league, I would be, more willing to follow the the path of something I've seen Tom Trudeau do before where he's just hammering prospects the entire time. Like if you're picking mm-hmm. in the back of the first round in a 20 team league that's starting up right now, you consider Wander Franco and Julio Rodriguez with your first two picks and you just go heavy, heavy with the high upside elite of the elite prospects because even if they fall short of expectations, the odds of them flopping completely and being useless in a 20-team league are pretty low. And you can build a core of players that are all future like top 50 to top 100 guys by just going after the players who are a couple years away. Now, in a 10-team league, the threshold for being good enough to be in the active lineup is so high, and the replacement level on the waiver wire, even when rosters are deep, is so much higher than what you're going to get in a 20-team league you don't have to do that. You don't have to play for the long-term future to have that core in place. Um, yeah, a player like Sam Hilliard, who you mentioned, probably wouldn't have been owned in the league that James is describing going into last season. Sam Hilliard would have been a pickup on the waiver wire 
either when he was going nuts in the minors or even when he was called up. So that that difference is enough to where it changes the way you want to play it. I think you can be competitive a lot quicker even after you have to tear it down temporarily in a league that's a lot smaller, in part because replacement levels are, are so much higher on the wire, but also because there's half as many teams that you're competing against as well. Yeah, I'm trying to find the 2015 list for Baseball America. Just wanted to throw some actual names on there, but having a little bit of trouble. No, we'll track it down. I mean, the other thing you can to answer James's question, I wouldn't think about it before the third or fourth round at the absolute earliest. If if you get to the third or fourth round and you're still sitting there and none of those prospects have been taken, okay, like maybe a guy like Luis Robert, we talked about him earlier in the show. Maybe you jump him up because you're getting immediate value and long term value. Mm-hmm. You could do something like that and and take a few shots and still and still have the guy that helps you now that also adds more value later. Uh, but you, you certainly don't have to be as aggressive with those young players in that smaller, air quotes, smaller dynasty or keeper format. Yeah, and I think I think the thing that would be most radical, different, radically different for me is not so much when that first mind leaguer is taken, but when the first 30-year-old is taken. I would really try to get 25 to 27-year-olds. Yeah, try to stay on the lower part of the aging curve. Once you get to be 32 in these types of leagues, your trade value is nil. It is, uh, it is crazy how quickly that dries up. And I think that age does hit sooner in a, a more shallow dynasty league. You know, I think right. you're going to have more teams willing to take that chance. Uh, like Max Scherzer is a, a very difficult player to figure out uh, in a, a 10-team Dynasty League, especially like, like, where would you take Max Scherzer in that format? If I'm playing for now, I'm probably not that worried about it because I think I can replace him a lot easier. But his trade value is going to be a lot lower than it probably should be. Yeah, I mean, imagine trying to trade Joey, Joey Votto right now. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not going to bring back anything in a trade, even in an OBP ten team Dynasty League. He, he's almost worthless because there are questions about power. Uh, there's questions about how elite even his best categories are going to be. I traded forward. him before last season in a 12-team dynasty that's similar to this, and I got um, at, at like sort of minorly protected, so they weren't on my major league roster. Kristen Stewart and Ian Anderson. It's not very exciting. Wow. Yeah, that's that's not much. But it's probably more than I could get now. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think you you timed it right because you you would probably get worse offers now uh, by comparison. But thank you for that question, James. Uh, yeah, the shallow keeper and shallow dynasty leagues, those are those are a different animal. You got to have a pretty different mindset, I think, to be uh, really successful in those formats. I prefer those deeper leagues, but I understand a lot of people, you know, you can only find nine close friends who want to play in a long-term keeper baseball league. That is a, a, a real challenge. Uh, no beer of the week this week, but I think beer of the week will return on next week's episode. As always, if you want to send us a question, you can do that. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com is the email address. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>